Well, in the midst of life in a broken world, where is comfort to be found? That's the question posed to us this morning by the man referred to as the preacher, or in Greek, ecclesiastes, from which we get ecclesiastes, it just means the preacher. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first chapter of his sermon, in which he forced us to wrestle with the reality of our certain death and our seeming insignificance, with our vapor-like lives leaving no discernible impact upon the world that we leave behind. That was the uplifting message of chapter 1. And then in in chapter 2 last week, the preacher forced us to wrestle with the, the futility of all of our attempts to dull the pain of life as a vapor, our attempts to find relief in pleasure and possessions, which can never truly satisfy, can never truly take the pain away. That was the uplifting message of chapter 2. Now, the the preacher does provide us with a positive response to these problems, but his responses in these first two chapters are quite brief and a little cryptic. As we turn now to chapter 3, he's going to provide a longer response, while at the same time confronting even more of the difficulties of our short-lived lives in this broken world, pressing us to ask the question, where is comfort to be found? I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. You can find it on page 616 of the Pew Bible, right about the center of the Bible, just after the book of Psalms and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts, that we may find wisdom, that we may discover where true comfort is to be found. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I hope you'll keep your Bible open in front of you as we'll be skipping around chapter 3 quite a bit today as even part of chapter 4. Even if you've never read these first eight verses of chapter 3, you likely recognize them as you surely heard them sung. To everything, turn turn, turn. There's a season. Turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven. Folk singer Pete Seeger released this song in 1962. And three years later, in 1965, the the folk rock group The Birds rearranged the melody to the one that we're familiar with now. The lyrics of Seeger's song are directly taken out of the King James Version of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Verses 1 through 8. 
with only a few alterations, mostly just rearranging some of the phrases, and then two additions. The title phrase, turn, 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 and the closing line, after it concludes with a time for peace, Seeger sings, I swear it's not too late. Without a doubt, this is the longest passage of scripture to make its way into popular music. And that's not surprising. These verses have been referred to as a masterpiece of wisdom poetry. Fans of Seeger's rendition of the poem seem to understand it to be speaking to the the ever-changing seasons of life. Some good, some bad, some enjoyable, some regrettable. There is but one constant in life, and that constant is change. But I don't think most listeners to Seeger's song are hearing the fullness of what the preacher is saying with these words. Without the context of chapters 1 and 2 that come before the poem, and without verses 9 through 22 that immediately follow, how could they? Hear verse 9 again. What gain has a worker from his toil? The implied answer? Nothing. The ever-changing seasons of any given life don't continue forever. They all eventually come to an end. And there is no lasting gain, no lasting achievement to show for one's toil. For the world just keeps turning as it did before. Its cycles and its rhythms cannot be broken or controlled. To tack on the phrase, I swear it's not too late, that it's not too late for world peace, is in one sense to entirely miss the point. There is nothing that any of us can do to, to fundamentally change or to heal the brokenness of this world. It is beyond our control. The poem begins with our birth, but then immediately turns to our certain death. For just as quickly and beyond our control as our birth came to us, so too will come our death. Verse 2b, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. Well, plants are planted only to be harvested, to be plucked up, to be killed. Nothing is permanent. For everything, there is a season, meaning both a beginning and an end. Life is a vapor. Verse 3, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Consider the great temple that King Solomon built the most spectacular and sacred building that has ever been built, came crashing down less than 400 years later, destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. Or consider the even greater, the even larger temple that was erected upon the ruins of the first, only to likewise be destroyed by the Romans less than 600 years later, never to be rebuilt again. So it has been, and so it will be with every building ever built. So it has been, and so it will be with every civilization ever established, every person ever born. Nothing is permanent. For everything, there is a season. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, each in its season. A time to, to cast away stones, maybe, maybe clearing a field to build on it. A time to gather stones together, maybe gathering materials to build a home. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, 
a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. It's simple enough. Nothing gathered in this life can be held on to forever. Verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sow. With so much of the poem focused on relationships, it's fitting that we think about how all relationships come to an end. And more than that, that we've all had relationships that have been torn, have we not? We probably all had relationships that, that wisdom said needed to be torn, to be cut off for the sake of love, so as to no longer enable destructive behavior. We probably also all had torn relationships that needed to be sewn back together, to be mended, to be restored for the sake of love. But whatever is sewn together will eventually be torn apart. If not through the circumstances of life, then through the circumstances of death. Verse 7b, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Truly, we've all had moments when we knew that we needed to speak up to correct evil or error. We've all had moments when we knew we really ought to remain quiet, to allow offense to pass by. It takes wisdom to know the difference, and one often leads to the other. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. Loving and hating, hopefully with our, our hearts aligned with God's, loving only what he loves and hating only what he hates. And finally, verse 8b, a time for war and a time for peace. In the spirit of singing, it's not too late with Seeger and the birds. Yes, let us seek peace while we are on the earth, while we can. But know that even if achieved, it too eventually will give way to war once again. Nothing is permanent. For everything, there is a season. Does this mean that everything is meaningless? Is there no comfort to be found in this broken world? What's the preacher's answer? Well, as with chapter 1, and then again with chapter 2, here in chapter 3, the answer is found in the first verse of the chapter that acknowledges God. Verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And there it is. There is the key Message of the entire book. Your life and your labors are a gift given to you by God. But how exactly is that comforting? Well, no further explanation was given in chapter 1, and only a brief explanation was given in chapter 2. But, but here he gives a lengthier explanation for, for why it is comforting to know that your life is a gift from God. It's verse 11. God made everything beautiful in its time. You see, the, the world was made by God and for God. The world is being sustained by God and for God. So you, likewise, have been made and are being sustained by God and for God. And this is comforting because God does nothing in vain. Whatever he does, he does for a reason. Therefore, nothing is meaningless. Everything has a purpose. Every life and every season of life matters. For God is making everything beautiful in its time. The word for beautiful is the same word that's translated as fitting in chapter 5, verse 18. And so here in chapter 3, we, we can say that, that God is making everything beautifully fitting 
in its time, beautifully fitting. But how can this be, we ask? When everything good eventually gives way to something bad. When times of peace always give way to times of war. When times of laughing and dancing always give way to times of grieving and mourning. When life always gives way to death. How can this be described as beautifully fitting? When we hear that God is making everything beautiful in its time, we immediately and understandably begin to ask, what about this and what about that? And the preacher is about to address some of the biggest whatabouts that we can ask. But first, before we pile on all of our objections, we need to really hear what he is saying. Anticipating our objections, hear what he says in the second half of that verse. Verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God knows our hearts. He made them. He knows what, when faced with the trials of life, that we want explanations for, for why he has allowed this and, and why he has allowed that to take place. For how this and that could possibly work together for good in the end. We want to know. He knows that that's what we want. He also knows that that is not what we need. And so not only does he not explain himself to us, he has gone even further. He has created us with an innate sense that there is far more to this world than that we can see. He has put eternity into our hearts. And yet, he has not given us the ability to see or make sense of it all. To find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. To understand how the pieces fit together. History is like a great tapestry that is being woven together over time on a great loom. And we are capable only of, of seeing a very small portion of that tapestry. The portion involving the short lives we have lived up to this point. And we can only see that great tapestry from underneath. With all its gnarly knots under the loom. We can't see it as God sees it, from up above and all at once. Life lived under the sun is life lived under the loom. As I said before, the, the heart of Ecclesiastes is a tension. It's a tension between our ability to discern that, that God exists, that he has created all things, and that he is at work in this world, and our inability to discern what exactly he is doing in and through our lives. So why? Why has God chosen to put eternity into our hearts? Why has he chosen to, to make us long to understand why things happen? Why any of it matters? Animals don't concern themselves with that, but we do. Why did he make us that way? And yet, not give us the ability to make sense of it all. Why has he made us this way? It's to humble us is to teach us that God is God, and we are not. Only God can see the end from the beginning. Only God can understand how, how billions of births and, and billions of deaths over thousands of years, with countless ups and downs, joys and sorrows, can all work together for good in the end. Those who demand answers for why certain things happen will never find any comfort and rest in this world. Instead, we must accept and we must embrace the fact that we're never going to understand it all. 
We must let God be God and accept that we are not. Only then can we find comfort and rest in trusting Him. You see, the wisdom taught in this book is not about having the answers. It's about trusting that God does, that He knows what He's doing. How then should we live? Verse verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. It's very similar to the, the concluding phrases of chapter 2, is it not? We must take life one day at a time, recognizing that, that each blessing that comes is an undeserved gift from God, meant to be enjoyed, moving us to worship the giver more than the gift itself. And we are to take pleasure in all our toil, he says, or or more literally, we are to see good in all of our toil. We must labor to see the good that comes from our labor. And what is good for us to do, as verse 12 says, is to do good as long as we live. What is good for us to do is to do good. This phrase, do good, these are the same words that he uses in chapter 7, verse 20, where he declares that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So in that contrast, clearly the the call to do good as long as you live is a call to consciously live your, your life before the gaze of your maker, seeking to please him rather than to sinfully please yourself. The preacher is going to conclude this chapter in a similar fashion as the last. Skip ahead to the last verse of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will come after him? After your toil on earth is done, what will come after you? The same as what came before you. A broken world filled with oppression and evil, groaning for the day of redemption. Your labors will not have changed that. But never mind that. Don't live for tomorrow. Don't live for what comes after you. Live for today. You've been given today. This is your lot. This is your your portion given to you by God. So rejoice in knowing and trusting that God is accomplishing his good purposes through your life as you seek him even if you can't see how it all matters in the end. If God sets it before you, it matters. Because what he does matters. Skipping back to verse 14, where we left off. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Every morning that you find that you are still here, train yourself to pray. Today is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, show me your will and establish the work of my hands. From the time that you take to labor for your bread, to the time that you take to serve others, to the time that you take to eat, drink, and and enjoy God's good gifts, do all things before his gaze and seeking his will. Verse 15, 
that which is, that which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The first part of verse 15 sounds a lot like verse 9 of chapter 1, about there being nothing new under the sun, right? It's true, we, we can achieve nothing new that will finally remedy the problems of this broken world. And we, along with all of our works, will be forgotten by those who live after us. But that doesn't matter, because God sees, and God will remember. He will never forget. God seeks what has been driven away. It's actually a very difficult phrase to interpret, so you'll notice that translations are quite different. It either means that that God will call the past to account. How the NIV renders it, God will call the past to account. Meaning that the day is coming when God will judge every decision and every deed. Thus showing that every decision and every deed and every moment matters. For it will be judged. And that's true. Or this phrase, God seeks what has been driven away. It could mean that, that God seeks justice for the persecuted. As the CSB renders it. God seeks justice for the persecuted. Thus serving as a transition to his next topic in the next verse. Namely, the the injustices perpetrated by humans against one another. But either way, the point is, God is watching. And thus, everything matters. Every life, every season of life matters. Because of God. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in the place of justice, such as in a court of law, even there was wickedness. Crooked lawyers, crooked judges. In the place of righteousness, such as the temple that Solomon built, such as in a church, even there was wickedness. Wicked temple priests, wicked pastors. This brings us to one of our main objections to the claim that God is making everything beautiful in his time. But what about the terrible injustices that happen every day? We ask. That's our objection. Skip ahead to the first few verses of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living or who are still alive. But that better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evils that are done under the sun. The Bible is true to life, is it not? This is the king speaking. The one who surpassed all who were over Jerusalem before him. The one in charge of executing justice and righteousness in the land. And yet despite his great power and influence and endless resources, even he despairs of there being any end to oppression, any justice for the oppressed. Where then is comfort to be found? Given all the atrocities that take place in the world, how can we refrain from despair on the one hand and anger against God on the other? What's the preacher's rebuttal? to this objection of chapter 3, verse 16, to trusting God. His answer, where government fails, God will succeed. Chapter 3, verse 17. And I said in my heart, 
God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God is going to call the past to account. The only way to endure the injustices that surround us is to find comfort in knowing and in trusting that God is going to set things right. This is the first half of the preacher's rebuttal to our objection about these injustices. The second half of his rebuttal begins in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity or vapor. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. We die just like the beasts of the field and we are equally unable to prevent it. But how is this a rebuttal to our objection to trusting God, given injustice? Well, simply put, death teaches us. It teaches us that we are creatures. We are created beings. And thus, we are in no position to judge our creator. He is our judge. We are not his. He continues, verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? The word translated as spirit here is the exact same word that's translated as breath in verse 19, where he declares that humans and animals all have the same breath. It's simply referring to the life breath that animates our physical bodies. He's not referring to some notion of a spirit or a soul that indwells human bodies but not animal bodies. No, he's focusing on what makes man and beast the same. We are creature, not creator. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's not concerned with what you may or may not experience between the time of your death and the time of your judgment, or or with what you may or may not experience after the judgment. What he wants you to wrestle with is the fact that you are going to die, just like an animal. Like the first man and woman who rejected God's rule over them, so too we have sinned against him, and the wages of sin is death. And when the sun finally sets on our lives, he is going to judge us for the life that he has entrusted to us, and we are going to be found lacking. Implied in the preacher's call to to fear God and to obey God and to, to receive his good gifts with gratitude and to enjoy them is the offer of God's greatest gift, the gift of forgiveness of sins. Left unsaid is how it is that the wicked can be forgiven and yet justice still be served. You see, there there was one man, one righteous man on the earth, who only did good and never sinned, who sought justice and grieved over the tears of the oppressed, who himself was persecuted by those in power and had no one to comfort him, despite having perfectly pleased the God the Father all the days of his life. We may never be given eyes to see how all the atrocities that most trouble us in life are being used by God for his good purposes. We may never see that. But to see the world through the eyes of faith is to set aside our need for those kinds of answers. For the most atrocious act in the history of the world has been made beautiful in its time. 
For following the crucifixion of God the Son, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead so that all who place their trust in him are forgiven all their sins. We can be given eyes to see this fact. At the cross and in that empty tomb, God has proven his trustworthiness. So trust him. Trust that he is at work in and through every season of your life. And you will find comfort for your soul. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. We thank you for the gift of life. Help us to look to the cross when we are tempted to doubt your goodness and wisdom. Comfort us through knowing and trusting that every life and every season of our lives matter, even when we can't see how. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.